Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 65. Uh, The Word of God, written, uh, inspired, and written and inerrant. Hear the Word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you alone, or you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth or in all at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Amen. May God bless that reading of His Word to our hearts and lives. Let's pray. O God, we do ask that we might be able to hear the psalmist sing about all of nature singing your praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, every preacher faces a very difficult choice, a a complex fork in the road as he opens a text, and that's where we are tonight. One path to take is the verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. Now, that's a tried-and-true method in many places, and it's one that has many good things that flow from it. Not only is the Word engaged, but people are taught perhaps better how to read their Bibles as someone takes them by the hand and walks them verse by verse through the passage. But that's not the only way that you can preach a text or through God's Word. You can also make a presentation of the textual argument. That is, you don't go verse by verse, but you you follow and pattern the movements of thought and reason that are given in the text. 
And so you're not just following the order of the words, but you're following the order of the thoughts in that particular passage. Another thing you can do in handling a particular pericope is you can follow the inner logic of the text, not simply restating the argument as it's given movement for movement, but looking at the text and looking at the the bases on which the arguments are made, and you can trace it out on a deeper level. Now, what would be a lot of fun is to do all three at the same time, but I've never mastered that art. And we don't have all the time in the world. Psalm 65 has just 13 verses, and we'll look at those together tonight, tracing out, as in that third fork, the inner logic of the passage. And I hope here... As we unpack the chapter in that way, we will see that from Zion, that is the church, praise is due our great God. Praise is due the Lord. Now, the first major feature of this passage is that praise is due to God for creation. Uh, There are a whole set of of Psalms, in particular, that emphasize aspects of creation. We have sung hymns that are drawn from those psalms, a number of them tonight, like 103 that we ended with. But Psalm 65 emphasizes that praise is do your God for his great work of creation. Verse 6 tells us that he makes the world. He is the one who by his strength Establish the mountains being girded with might. Now this is a, a sample. He focuses on the mountains and talks about God making the mountains because as he stands on Zion, the psalmist looks all around and the making of that great and mighty feature that rises up out of the ground is a perfect way to illustrate and emphasize and highlight God's creating hand of all of the created order. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God can make a mountain, then he can make a flat land and a valley. If he can make a mountain, then he can make a tree. If he can make a mountain, he can make anything and everything, and indeed he has. God has made it all. But we also see that right on the heels of emphasizing that God is the creator and to be praised for that reason, we also see that the psalmist teaches that he governs the world by his promise. Verse 7 says, Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. God has made all that we see and all that we can't see. And he also governs it by his providence. He is the sovereign Lord over all creation. He rules over creation. And he even rules over men. He even rules over the hearts and lives of the nations, we're told in verse 7. Oh, there's something of an illustration or a parallel. The the tumult of the sea, uh, that that part of creation that even from Genesis 1 is is seen as illustrating chaos and even rebellion. 
Here the Lord is said to be the sovereign over. And he moves his hand. And the chaos of the waters ceases. He calms the waves. He stills the storm with just a word. This psalm is letting us know that God is Lord over all. And by singing this psalm over and over and over again, He prepared the heart and the mind of His people when they saw that with just a word, Jesus could still the storm and stop the raging of the sea. As we've looked together as a congregation in the morning in Luke chapter 8, In verse 24 just recently, they could see the claim and the evidence of the power of divinity in the hand of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, the psalmist is clear. We should praise the name of God because He has made the world and He also governs it. I don't know if you've heard, but, um, you know, walking down the walking down the hall and, and out the entrance of the nursing home this afternoon, I couldn't help but notice, you know, Germany won the World Cup. And God is even sovereign over that. Men move on the field. They kick their little ball. They cheer and make their goals. But God is the sovereign Lord, and He governs all that happens. He also sustains the world by His providence. The next verse emphasizes this, so that those, verse 8, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs, you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You know, the prior verse is talking about a great and mighty action of God where His voice comes and He commands the waves to be still And we see its fulfillment in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a special, a strange, a miraculous providence that calls us to stand back and be in awe of Him. Who is this man that even the wind and waves obey Him? And then in the next verse, just naturally, David sings of the setting and of the rising of the sun and how the power of God and His providence in sustaining the created order that He has made, that it it operates by His power, by His will, by His word, that He is sovereign over, yes, the extraordinary, but also over the ordinary things of life. He exercises dominion over creation everywhere. His reign is universal. And so he makes even the rising and setting of the sun an occasion on which we and the nations ought to praise and glorify his name. Do you see that? That when you get in your car in the morning and and you get on I-10 and and you start heading to the energy corridor or into the city and the sun begins rising on you and ten or a hundred thousand of your closest friends that that is a time when you should sing the praise of the Lord and thank Him. Because you see, because it's by His power, 
The ordinary is not the mundane. It is the occasion of praise. But then the psalmist also has a second theme that he lays down. He he sharpens this emphasis upon creation. He sharpens it to a very, a very sharp point in our thinking and in our feeling. Praise is due to God for making and sustaining creation, but praises also do Him particularly for the harvest. Now, this may well be the historic occasion that prompted in the providence and in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in David's life to write this psalm, to compose it and sing it. Uh, This psalm is one which emphasizes that God has made the world and has made its bounty great for His people. And that's something that we know about as a congregation because we just referred to it earlier this morning. If you have your bulletin, look back. Look back at the affirmation of faith taken from Heidelberg Catechisms, questions 27 and 28. Now, I know the nice thing about evening service is that it's so simple that you don't even need a bulletin. But just listen. Question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruit and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, Riches and poverty, indeed all things, come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. And what does it benefit us to know this? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love for all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they cannot so much as move. You know, for the last nine weeks after Dad had a nine-hour surgery, I've, I've watched a man lie in bed, my, my father lie in bed and sometimes say, I cannot move or, or I don't want to move or I'm too tired to move or I cannot move. I have seen him despair of life. And wonder, wonder whether the next breath would be his last. God in his sovereign providence is the only reason you can breathe and move and do anything at all. And so the bounty that he gives, the bounty that he gives in harvest is a great occasion for giving him praise. You see, verse 9 goes on to tell us that God is active in giving blessing. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You see, God does not create the world and then abandon it. He is not at, at arm's length so that He really is is not uh, interested in it. Rather, he is actively involved. 
we might say he's fully engaged with his creation. He enriches it. He blesses it. His sovereignty is not even overthrown by the sinful rebellion of the delegated head of creation before. Our first father, Adam. You see, as you came to church this evening, you, you drove along and you saw the beautiful sun setting and your heart sang in praise to God. As you drove in, you saw the beautiful lawn and the, and the bushes and, and flowers and trees that had planted around the church and you thought, this is beautiful. It's a part of God's creation. But it's not like it was originally intended to be. You see, there are weeds out in that there grass. There are thorns and thistles that grow and make life hard and difficult to walk across the lawn with bare feet. The created order reflects the brokenness and tension and dislocations that you feel in your own soul because of your rebellion and your wickedness and sinfulness. But yet still, in spite of that, the Lord God Almighty is the one who is active in giving blessing. He actively enriches and grows and provides all that you need for life. It's interesting, there's a a special uh, highlighting here of abundance in water that He provides. Verse 10, your water... You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, blessing its growth. The verse before, it makes reference to the river of God, which is full of water. God gives water overflowing. God supplies, and, and that is the basis on which He has chosen for growth to occur. You know, I grew up back east in South Carolina, and... And in the place that I grew up, you know, there's water, water everywhere. There, there are trees much larger than there are in my neighborhood. Uh, there are giant, towering, long-leaf pines. You know, we get a little ice here every once in a while in the winter, and, and people wonder if their driveway will be slippery. But, but you know, back there, there, with thundering crashes, the limbs come down and the power lines come down. Uh, my poor parents huddled in, in a back room with a, praise the Lord, a wood stove for over a week waiting for the lights to come back on. Water, water everywhere back east. But then we came to Texas and we learned to appreciate water a little more. Water in Texas is wonderful. It rains big and hard here in Texas. It comes down and thumps your head. The drops are so big. And the sun is is big and hot. And in just a short period of time, you look out and think that it hasn't rained in a month of Sundays at all. In Texas, you feel your need of water until it rains too hard. And it won't go away. And it floods the highway and you just have to wait for it to go down the bayou a little farther. 
But water in abundance is what the psalmist is singing in praise to God concerning because an abundance of gentle water means an abundance of crop, an abundance of harvest. Because you see, the Lord is merciful and in giving water, He gives a full and bountiful crop. Verse 11 says, You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. I can remember as a child being back in visiting family in central Virginia. They had a dairy farm and And there were silos and there was silage. There was corn to be brought in. There was hay to be harvested. And you know, for a suburban boy, that was really idyllic to go and and to sit and to watch all of that on the side of the pasture. And then they said, okay, boy, come with us. We've got to pick up the bales. And it was, you know, not those giant uh, round bales that you use lifts and tractors and and you haul them with machinery, it was those rectangular, as heavy as lead by the third one you pick up. And you're told to pick it up, and and you're supposed to toss it to the guy on the top of the stack. And my uncles could do it like tossing a leaf. And I would try and try and, well, let's just say they weren't too impressed with a South Carolinian nephew that came to visit Their crop was bountiful. My father spent a couple of years there after his his own dad died and and he said one of the most fun things to do was was to be put into the silo. And your job was to push the silage as it poured down on you and, and make sure that it was, it was properly being distributed. I, I don't know quite what it was. The smell of silage or, or the itchy feel of it coming down or just permission to be dirty and nasty and scream and holler and kick up dust all you wanted. But, uh, he seems to have enjoyed it. But it was testimony to the bountiful harvest that God had provided. Oh, there are times of joy when the wagon can't even keep all the crops in. They overflow and, and the path that they follow to the barn, there's all this testimony lying on either side of the ruts that the abundance of God's blessing has been full and free. But you know it's not always that way in this world. It's a fallen world that we live in. And there may be seven years of great blessing, but sometimes there's seven years of want, of drought and hunger and thirst. Oh, there is fat flowing in the barn and in the fields and until the rain doesn't fall. And then we're reminded of our first father Adam and our first mother Eve and of their rebellion. But those times when there's great abundance and, and the rain falls on the just and the unjust and, and the Lord richly blesses His people with great harvest, that's an occasion on which the farmer theologian scratches his head and says, now hold on. What's going on? It's a fallen world. But God has blessed 
so richly. You see, those occasions in the life of Israel, like the one prompting David to sing, they're occasions on which the superabundance of God's blessing is highlighted. That's not natural. What's natural in this world is the fallen, broken fear and heartache which paralyzes you and tempts you to evil so often. What's supernatural is when the Lord passes His hand over the dry ground and He fills it with water and grass and crops and flocks more than you can count or eat. God punctuates the history of our brokenness with times of great blessing. And those occasions are His divine calling card that He lays down on the table to remind us of His wonderful covenant of grace. You see, praises do Him for creation and praises do Him particularly for harvest. But that harvest and that blessing is testimony to the fact that He is also and especially due praise for redemption. The psalm opens on that theme. Praises due to you, O God, in Zion. To you shall vows be performed, O You who hear our prayers, to you all flesh shall come. This psalm is one in which the prophet king plucks on his lyre and sings at the top of his voice that praises do God who receives and rightly receives our worship. See, men, sinful men are silent before him. And yet... He puts His song in their hearts and on their lips. They pray to Him. They pay their vows to Him. And they sing His praise. God answers their prayer. He draws all men to Him in worship. Every tongue and tribe and people and nation. To you all flesh will come. David sings in a crescendo which much must have left the children of Israel curious and quivering with excitement. Now hold on, David. But we're the people of God. I mean, it's the, the sons of Abraham. We're the ones who get this great harvest. It's ours. And, and yes, the Lord God has given it. And, and it's, for, it's for our pleasure and for our strength and for our rejoicing and praising of God. And, well, okay, you know, the... The queen of Sheba, she can come and, and she can see the glories of the outer edges of the temple and, and, and she can hear about the wonderful wisdom that you have given your people and, and all right, the king of Tyre, he may come and he may bow down to you because you have conquered and, and you are mighty and, and that's fine, but, but what's this about God answering the prayers of all flesh? that he draws into his temple.
And the Holy Spirit pushes, prompts, and fills the mouth of David with another verse, even more important. Verse 3 says, When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Here David, the man after God's own heart, sings the truth about his own life. Uh, David doesn't confess his sins just in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. He confesses his sin, his need of God's forgiveness over and over and over again in his life. Do you? Do you know you're a sinner? Do you know that you need God as your Savior and He's your only hope? David knew. And so David sings of this. And he knows that he is a sinner. And he knows that his people are sinners. He knows that they all need to sing with him about their individual sins. You know, in our liturgy, we we had a corporate confession this morning and, and you dutifully read those words. And I commend you for it. Because they're true and right. But then we had our private, individual, silent confession of sin. And what did you do? Did you watch your watch and wonder now how long will, how long will the pastor wait until we get to the good part? You know, where, where everything's fine and I don't need to worry anymore. In the assurance of pardon. Did you look at your shoes and your sandals and your toes? Did you peek or prod the person next to you? What what did you do in that time? You had an occasion on which you could be like David, the man after God's own heart, and, and you could humbly confess your sins. You could be particular and painful and stand humiliated before the Lord your God Because you had humiliated Him who made you and gave you breath and you broke His holy word and will. The psalmist confesses his sin here. But he also confesses in the next breath that God forgives. That God forgives his sin. Here we see David getting it. Understanding. He understood what the tabernacle was, what the temple to come was going to be for. He understood the mosaic sacrificial system. All of the the lambs and bulls and goats and turtle doves whose blood had been shed, who had been roasted on the altar, whose flesh even he had eaten, rejoicing before God. He understood the reason for that cultic ceremony that it was not for his pleasure and for the excitement of his taste buds. It was not for him to have fun and enjoy being in church. It was to confess his sin, that he was a sinner in need of God to save him, that it wasn't the lamb that deserved to be on the altar. It was him. He deserved to be roasted whole. He deserved to die and be consumed. He got it. Do you? Do you get it? 
Do you see your sinfulness and your need of a Savior? Or do you just go through the motions to satisfy those around you? But then there's one more thing. Did you catch it? David uses language. He uses grammar. Now, I know this is absolutely terrifying to to a modern, postmodern kind of culture, but you know, he uses grammar to communicate something even more profound. He indicates that yes, he is a sinner, but that God is the Savior of sinners. He says, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. God receives worship and and God forgives sins, but He doesn't just forgive my sins. He doesn't even just forgive the sins of me and my people, you know, the ones I like. He forgives the sins of people drawn from all the nations. Blessed, verse 4 continues, is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Here David is showing that he's a good reform kind of guy. God chooses. You know, John Knox didn't make that up. John Calvin didn't spin that out of air. God is an electing God. Before you had breath, He had a true and holy will, sovereign, and He declares some of it to us. A little bit more of it He he unfolds to us in His providence. C.S. Lewis said he he wasn't exactly sure the moment that he had become a Christian, but it was somewhere between two different bus stops in Oxford. He got on the bus lost in his sin and misery, and he got off the bus saved by the grace of God. God chooses, and he sovereignly brings us into his kingdom According to his holy will, David sings of the fact that God chooses and then brings those near that he has chosen. He brings them into his house to dwell in his courts, to worship in his presence, to rejoice and sing praise before him for his redemption. God brings some into His holy temple. All the world does not come, but He does bring some from all the world. There's no use denying it. There is an illustration here of the temple of God and some come and dwell in that place drawn by the sovereign, almighty, electing hand of God. Some will come from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. You know what that means? That means the kingdom of God looks a little bit like Christ's church on Sunday morning. 
There are folks from all sorts of places. Do you know, we have people not just from Texas here, but we have people here from back east and back west. We have people from Canada. We have people from Mexico. We have people from Europe. We have people from Asia. I don't know if right now we have an Aussie, but I bet if we worked at it, we might find one somewhere in the congregation. God, God's kingdom, His kingdom will be full to overflowing with abundance, abundant representation from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. God gets the glory. Just like in the, in the harvest, the, the abundance that overflows and it's so much it falls off the wagons as we try to get it into the barn. They spill out into the narthex. They are in every court of the temple. And that interplay between the singular me, my sin, what I have done wrong, and that plural atonement for our sins, forgiveness for us that we enjoy full and free. It's a beautiful picture of the fact that the Lord will draw the nations to Himself. There's a contrast also in verse 1 between praise due to God in Zion and then here in verse 5, He is also the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest sea. Yes, in Jerusalem, He will gather them together. But He will gather them from the ends of the earth and across the farthest sea. That means distance is not too hard for Him. Distance is overcome by Him in His great covenant of grace. By the sending of His Son, the Son of God incarnate, the One who takes on human flesh and dwells among us. Yes, He is one. He is a particular man. He is the Son of Mary. He is In our flesh, though. And just like He couldn't be both male and female, it was God's will that He come as a man. And He saved by being nailed to a tree all of the men numbered among His elect and all the women too. And all the sons of Israel and all the Greeks and other Gentiles as well. We're a motley crew, but He is a glorious and universal Savior who can save even sinners like us, no matter what our background and no matter what our offense. And so David tells the choir master to lead us all in singing that praise is due God from Christ's church for His creation and for His abundant blessing and for the forgiveness and redemption that He gives in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is something to sing about. Let us pray. Oh, our Father, even now as we hear the thunders of Your power displayed in creation, we have cause and reason to rejoice in You and sing Your praise. 
We ask that you would help us to see and feel the importance of every sunrise and sunset, all of the ordinary things of life, to remember that you're the creator and that you are the God of providence. And those extraordinary things, those tokens of encouragement and those great mountaintop miracles that you have sprinkled down through the ages according to your will and covenant, we pray, O God, that our hearts might rejoice and leap in praise to you at every one. And help us to love the Savior and follow him and serve him all our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.